The big black man wiped the sweat from his forehead with a stained handkerchief. He sat on the porch of his tiny wood frame house on Imperial Highway and stared into the darkness. He didn't see the cars that whizzed and wheezed by. He didn't hear them. Instead, he thought about his 13-year-old son, his dead son, his murdered son, and the murderer had gone unpunished. The law, more specifically the judge, had seen to that. Where was the sense of it all that a vicious murderer should go free? That a boy should be attacked in front of his own house, stabbed seven times, and bleed to death in front of his father? Where was the justice that his killer should be caught and arrested and convicted of homicide, convicted by a jury, and then be released by the judge? The headlights of the passing cars were like stars twinkling against the blackness of the sky. Except the nighttime Los Angeles skies were ruddy brown with smog and no stars could be seen past the veil of dirt. Again, the man mopped at his forehead with the handkerchief. He knew what he must do for his son and any others like him. If the courts wouldn't stop the murderers, he would do it himself. The Coat Python 357 Magnum was well-oiled, well-cared for. With the hammer resting on an empty chamber, there were only five Remington 158 grain jacketed hollow points in the revolver, but that would be enough. The six-inch barreled Colt was a big weapon for most people, but was in scale with the size of the man. The weapon felt good in his hand, but still a little frightening. He was, after all, sitting on the porch of his house in South Central Los Angeles, waiting to kill a man, or several. The gray Mercedes-Benz was cruising north on the Harbor Freeway, the driver returning from his newly acquired rental property in San Pedro. His destination was a sprawling four-bedroom house with a pool and tennis court in Bel Air in the west end of Los Angeles. The Benz was only two weeks old and the driver was proud of his new toy. Ownership of a car with the three-pointed star on the hood no longer conferred exclusivity in Southern California. German cars were everywhere and sometimes it seemed that the entire output of Stuttgart was exported to LA. But still he was pleased. It was his first Mercedes after a lifetime of Cadillacs. A new one each year for longer than he cared to remember. But now he had embarked on a new course. He had lost weight. The hair implants were almost completed. And something hipper than another Fleetwood limousine was called for. Already he had received compliments from the guys at the criminal courts building. And a very particular compliment from the new clerk, Melissa Lang. 20 years his junior and very attractive indeed. Young women seemed fatally drawn to German cars. Oh yes, buying the Mercedes had been the right thing to do. Suddenly he realized he had passed the spot where he should have left the Harbor Freeway and joined up with the 405. The purring of the air conditioner had masked all sense of time and he had no idea how long he had been traveling in the wrong direction. He felt as if he was in the middle of nowhere.
He couldn't believe people lived in the suburbs he was now passing through. Places like Gardena and Lawndale. Even the name sounded foolish. Gardena was where bingo was legal. Imagine all those high rollers playing bingo. The middle of nowhere. Maybe the best thing to do would be to get off at the next exit. Then simply turn around and head back to the missed interchange. He left the freeway at El Segundo Boulevard, intending to swing around. He didn't like this neighborhood. The cars were old, beat up just like the people. Everything and everyone was tired and broken. Then an ancient Ford pickup truck headed toward him. He swerved in order to miss it. Even with the sound of the air conditioner, he could make out angry voices from the truck. Voices he'd rather not have heard. Not at night in this part of town. He accelerated away from the narrowly averted accident and from those shiny black faces. If he could just get to the freeway entrance, he'd be long gone. But the truck had forced him to turn the wrong way, east instead of west. And he was headed right into the worst that Los Angeles had to offer. There was the sound of an explosion. He saw the pickup in his rearview mirror. There were two people in the back of the truck and one of them was waving his arms around like a wild man. Then there was a second explosion as a beer bottle, thrown by the crazy in the truck, smashed against the asphalt. What should he do? The cellular car phone hadn't been installed yet. He was miles from any sort of civilized person and those apes in the pickup were coming alongside. Another beer bottle came sailing his way. It landed in front of the Mercedes, shattered, and one of the jagged pieces ripped open the front right tire. It went all at once. Riding on a flat, he'd never be able to outdistance them. The car was vibrating terribly. He swung the steering wheel around, just managing to make a corner. The driver of the pickup, was he just drunk or was he also doing coke, failed to make the turn. He sighed with relief. Maybe he was safe now. The man with the revolver sat patiently on his porch. The gang member who had killed his son had vowed to return. The murderer was all of 16 and he had stood there in the courtroom and laughed when the judge threw out the jury's guilty verdict. Showing no fear, with the certain knowledge that those sworn to uphold the law would do nothing, he had promised that the man would die the same way his son had died. The judge had banged his gavel for a few seconds, but other than that, no officer of the court reacted to the threats. It seemed only the murderer felt free to speak his mind. Sitting on the porch this hot summer evening, the man knew the threats had been genuine. He knew that the killer perhaps accompanied by the rest of the gang, would be back. Up ahead, the driver of the Mercedes saw an intersection with a traffic light, and the light was green. As quickly as the flat tire allowed, he turned left onto Imperial Highway. It was the main thoroughfare, making him feel more secure, and he was headed west again toward the freeway entrance. He crossed a set of railroad tracks. At this speed, the car seemed to be shaking apart. 
In front of him was another set of tracks, and then the freeway. He was going to make it. On the freeway, he would stop at the first call box and notify the highway patrol. But above the sound of the now shredded tire and the mangled rim, there was a moronic hooting sound. He checked the rearview mirror. The truck was back. The man on the porch heard a disturbance several blocks away. Screams that sounded more like war cries. Squealing rubber, breaking glass, and the whap 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 of a flat tire. These screams and squeals were coming closer. He saw a large, shiny car approach and a rusty old Ford truck in pursuit. The car was all over the street before it crashed into an empty bench by the bus stop. A man emerged from the crumpled sedan, a small white man wearing a suit. What was he doing in this neighborhood? Didn't he know he could get killed in this place? He stumbled forward as the pickup truck veered toward him, trying to run him over. One of the drunks in the back of the truck fell out, landed on the street and got up laughing. The truck came to a halt. The driver and the remaining passengers spilled out and began to chase their prey. The man on the porch thought he recognized the fleeing man. But no, that wasn't possible. The man in the suit was headed wildly down the street toward the wood frame house. One of his tormentors called out a warning to his friends. Don't go down there. It's old man Johnson. He's crazy. He's got himself a gun. They stopped, but the man kept running toward the house. He was too out of shape to go farther. He stopped on the sidewalk in front of the big black man. He didn't see the revolver. Help me, he said. They're trying to kill me. I'll do it for them, the man on the porch said and fired the coat five times. The powerful strobes of two Los Angeles Police Department patrol cars and a Los Angeles Fire Department ambulance bathed the house and the porch in an unearthly red light. Not the kind of red that had oozed from his son's body, thought the man, and not like the crimson stains on the white dress shirt of the man in the suit. A ghostly, unreal, shimmering, transparent red, visible one moment, vanished the next. Funny thing, the plainclothes LAPD detective said as he stared at the body of the man in the suit. His been around here. I mean, not exactly his kind of neighborhood. I think I've seen this guy. The uniformed patrolman replied. He had been the first to respond to the call. But not here, somewhere else. He wouldn't be here. As I said, not his kind of neighborhood. Now I remember, it was downtown at CCB. That's right, said the detective. The criminal courts building. You know him too. Is he someone important, a lawyer? Important? The detective's eyes narrowed as he turned to the young patrolman. Not anymore he isn't, but there was a time. In the background, the police radios crackled to life. Another killing. Another part of the city. Someone else's problem. You see, Sergeant, I lost a couple of cases because of this guy. Remember the movie murderer? The serial killer who filmed his rape victims before beating them to death. The patrolman shook his head. Yeah, well, 
It's been a while. Before your time, I guess. The detective loosened his tie and took a deep breath of stale, smoking air. It took a lot of legwork and some good tips from an informant, but we tracked down this freak and arrested him. The paramedics had loaded the dead man onto a gurney, covered his face with a red blanket, and were wheeling him toward the ambulance. And it was a righteous bust, too. No procedural errors that would allow a guilty verdict to be overturned on appeal. But that bastard. He pointed at the body as it disappeared into the ambulance. Cut him free. Claimed that even though we'd read off the Miranda, there was some question the defendant hadn't understood his rights. The ambulance doors slammed shut. He said the city of Los Angeles hadn't provided a minimally accepted standard of education in the public schools and therefore the defendant didn't have a true understanding of his legal situation when he waived those rights. We did eventually nail the suspect, but not before he'd raped and beaten another woman. The detective walked up to the man on the porch. Mr. Johnson, he said to the man, you've got nothing to worry about. It was obvious you felt your life was threatened and you acted in self-defense. We know you were threatened in court. The ambulance drove off silently. It's late at night, the detective said. You're sitting peacefully on your porch when a bunch of thugs confront you. You know it's the gang out for their promised revenge. You fire and kill one of them. You couldn't possibly have known it was a Los Angeles judge you were shooting at. You couldn't have known it was the judge who freed your son's murderer. You couldn't have known that, could you, Mr. Johnson? A wrong turn on the freeway brought this powerful judge to a Los Angeles ghetto where he would have a first-hand experience with poetic justice and ultimately reap what he had sown. Mr. Johnson was a victim of the corrupt court system the judge had controlled, but the tables were turned on that hot summer night. Indeed, the scales of justice were rebalanced when Mr. Johnson handed the judge a punishment that fit his crimes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Mini Mystery Theater. I am Tim Grant, your host, inviting you to stay tuned to this channel and to be sure to tune in for our next episode.